Okay, so we saw that the Yetzirah is our most formidable foe that we're trying to fight in our life, and the Talmud gave us four suggestions or four approaches to try to defeat it. We read this just in great detail. The first two, which the first one is to agitate it with the Yetzirah Tov, the second one is to study Torah, and I want to do the last two tonight. So the first one, or the third one, which is the first one that we do tonight, is the Gemara says, if you try to study Torah and it doesn't work, you should read the Shema. That's the magic solution. And the question is, obviously, how does this work? What about reading the Shema? And why is it not a great solution? It's not as good as studying Torah. There's something wrong with it, but it's not perfect, but it's still very good. And the question is, how, how does it work? So I want to start, of course, with some examples. Um, and this is number one of the sheets we see, uh, famously, Parshas Vayigash, when Joseph and Jacob are reunited, Joseph cries on the shoulder of Jacob, but Jacob doesn't. Jacob is stoic. And the question is, why is Jacob not having an emotional reunion with his son that he's been missing for 22 years? So Rashi famously tells us that Jacob did not fall on Joseph's shoulders. He didn't kiss him. He didn't hug him. He wasn't emotionally engaged because he was reading the Shema. So we see that he was utilizing something, or some variety at least, of this, of this process at that time. Now, my grandfather said a fantastic explanation. We've seen that the Avos, the forefathers, they're the Merkava, they're the chariot. They're always primed and ready for prophecy. And the way to get prophecy is to get rid of the things that stop the prophecy, i.e. the Yetzirah. So they were always uh, free and clear of their Yetzirah. But he was worried he's going to be gushed with emotion, with love, that he's going to lose sight of God for a second and lose his state of readiness. So to prevent that, he said the Shema, and thus he avoided, he deflected the potential diminishing of his spiritual readiness. That's what my grandfather said. But I just want to use it as an example of how someone used the Shema as a tactic to uh, prepare and to encounter and to engage with a scenario. So, and the Talmud tells us that this would work for fighting the Yetzirah straight up. You read the Shema. And the question is why? Like, what about the Shema? What about reading the Shema is so special? Uh, but also, why will it not necessarily work? Like, why is it only the third best solution? Why is it not the best solution? So you have to understand, on one hand, why does it work? And then why would it maybe not work as well? Okay, so there's an amazing Gemara here in Brachos. And the Gemara is telling us about the martyrdom of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, during the Hadrianic persecutions of the 130s of the Common Era, he was teaching Torah publicly, even though that was banned on pain of death. And they actually executed him in a really gruesome and brutal fashion. And the Gemara tells what happened at the time when Rabbi Kiva was being led to his execution. And the Gemara says it was the time of reading the Shema, and they were taking iron combs and scraping his flesh. And what was Rabbi Kiva doing? He was mekabal ol malchus Shema. He was saying the Shema. So his students said to him, Rabbeinu Ad Khan, our teacher, this much? I.e., even in such circumstances, you're saying the Shema? So he responds with a very puzzling and strange statement. My entire life, I was distressed. I was disappointed. I was saddened 
by reading the verse of you shall love Hashem your God with all your soul, which means even if he takes away your soul, our love of God has to be so complete that even if it means giving up our lives for it, we should do it. And my whole and my whole life when I said this verse, I was sad. Why? Amarti, I said, When will this thing finally come? When will I have this opportunity to do it so I could fulfill it? And now that it comes before me, I should not fulfill it? And the Gemara continues, He was saying, Echad, very long, the last word of the Shema. He said it very long, Until his soul departed, whilst he was saying the word Echad, Hashem is one. And the Gemara concludes, Yatzasa Baskal, a heavenly prophetic voice erupted, the Amra and declared, Ashrecha Rabbi Kiva, praiseworthy Rabbi Kiva, Sheyatza Nishmascha Be'echad, that your, that your Neshama departed with the word Echad. And concurrently, Amru Malachi Asharis Lafekaj Baruchu, the angels said to God, Zu Torah Vizus Chara. They see Rabbi Kiva being tortured and brutally killed in a horrific and tragic manner, and they say to God, how do you let this happen? This is Torah, i.e., this is Rabbi Tiva, and this is the reward, this is how he gets treated. What's going on? That's the, that, that's the episode. Obviously, it's a very striking episode, but it does contain our Shema, that Rabbi Tiva saying Shema, he's, is utilizing this as, you know, it's, it's a major player in this story. But I want to analyze this story, because I think there's some problems with the narrative. First of all, Rabbi Kiva said that his entire life, when he said the first verse, or i.e. the second verse of the Shema, so the verse of Vahafta, love the Almighty God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources, he was sad. He was disappointed. Why? Because he wanted to fulfill this mitzvah. And then finally he has the opportunity to fulfill a mitzvah, and he doesn't actually say that verse. Because he says, Shema Yisrael, Shema Kena Shema Chad, and he dies with the Chad. He doesn't actually say, He doesn't say that. So how come, if you're, every time you said the, the Pasuk, the verse of you were sad, and then now you're to fulfill it, and you don't actually say that verse, you say the other verse. Which I think is, is, is interesting. Well, and I don't think it's such a good, it's not such a, it's not such a problematic question, because it seems like that the verse of Shema, the first verse of Shema, and the second verse of Shema of loving God, they are actually related to each other. You have to believe in God, that's the first verse. Hashem exists. And how much, what is your relationship to that? You have to love Him, even if it means different life, your money, your house. It means that's connected. That when it says you have to give up your life for God, i.e., the second verse says that for the first verse you have to give up your life. So it's not such a strong question. But I think there's two more fundamental questions with this story. First of all, we know that if you are confronted with your life or God, well, we know that that's one of the things you have to give up your life for. But we hope to never have to make that choice. We hope that we are not forced to give up our life for God. But if we're forced to, okay, what can we do, right? We're forced into the corner. They say, bow down to the idol or we kill you. We have to bite the bullet. But that's not ideal. Ideally, we want to live. Rabbi Kiva is saying, no, 
every day he said the Shema, he was sad and disappointed and dejected and distressed that he doesn't have an opportunity to give up his life for God. Where does that come from? Where does this desire, this pining, yearning need to give up your life for God, so much so that you're sad and disappointed and depressed when you read the Shema because you don't have an opportunity? Number one. Number two, the end of the story. So the angels were like, God, what's going on in here? Look at Rabbi Tiva. Zu Torah v'zu This is the Torah. This is the reward. So it's interesting. This is not the only time that those words appear. There's one other place in the Talmud where the words zu Torah v'zu appear. And it's also referring to the death of Rabbi Tiva. It's also discussing the death of Rabbi Tiva when Moshe at Sinai, he goes up to heaven. The Talmud tells us in, in the book of Menachos, he goes up to heaven, he sees God making crownlets on top of letters. And he says, well, why are you making crownlets on top of letters? Because Rabbi Kiva is going to deduce piles and piles of laws from them. Well, show them to me. So Moshe sees Rabbi Kiva studying Torah. And then Moshe says, well, where is, where is his reward? And he too gets to see this episode. And then he comes back to God, Zu Torah And God responds to him, don't ask questions, you can't understand it. But what's interesting is that by Moshe, he at, Moshe actually witnessed right before that Rabbi Kiva's Torah. So he could say, Zu Torah, Rabbi Kiva has such mastery of a Torah, V'zu and he's being killed in such a horrific way. There's a juxtaposition of those two elements. Whereas the angels, the angels see Rabbi Kiva saying Shema. Of course, he's doing a mitzvah, he's doing Kirish Hashem. But where's the Torah? There is no Torah there. Of course, Rabbi Kiva is the great Torah scholar of his generation. But at that time, you can't say, Zu Torah, this is Torah, and this is the reward. What are you comparing here? It doesn't seem like Rabbi Kiva is engaging in Torah right now. So what are the angels saying, Zu Torah, Zu They should say, Zu Tzadik, Zu Zu Mitzvah, Zu There's a lot of things to say. Why are they saying, Zu Torah, Zu I want to suggest an idea. We know Rabbi Kiva was not always a Torah scholar. He was an Amaaretz. He was in Ignoramus. And he had an epiphany at a well. The Avast of Nassim says that he was 40 years old, a total ignorant. He came to the well and he sees a rock that has a hole in it. Why does the rock have a hole in it? Because there's a little drip, drip, drip of water penetrating the rock over many, many, many decades. And Rabbi Kiva takes this as a great inspiration. What does he say? Just water is soft and it could penetrate the rock, which is hard. Torah, which is hard, certainly can penetrate my heart, which is soft. That's what he says and cites the go study Torah. That's a famous story. All the kids know the story. Now, what's interesting is that if you actually examine this imagery, there's a fantastic lesson here. The Talmud tells us that the Yetzirah has seven names. Talmud in, 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 the book of, in the book of Sukkah, 52a. Sheva Shemus Yeshel Yetzirah. The seven names of the Yetzirah. It's either Ra, evil. It's Aral, foreskin. It's Tame, it's impure. It's Sone, it's a, it's a, it's a, an enemy. It's a Mishal, it's an obstacle. It's an Evan, it's a stone. Or it's a Tzfoni, which means something internal. So the Talmud actually says that one of the names of the Yetzirah is a stone. Rabbi Kiva sees a stone with a hole bore through it. In the example, the Torah 
is the water. The stone is someone's heart, i.e., like we said, b'shnei yitzarecha, b'shnei levavcha, right? V'haftas v'recha, b'chol levavcha, your heart. What's your heart? Your yitzar. So what the Talmud's describing is Rabbi Kiva's epiphany, but it's not just random. Rabbi Kiva sees a rock with a hole in it. Rabbi Kiva's actually describing how he studied Torah. He studied Torah that the water actually penetrated his heart, his internal stone, his yetzer, Ra. Rabbi Kiva's Torah was not just studying Torah. It was Torah that's, that, in, that integrated into someone's internal essence, and it transformed who they were. Says the Talmud in the book of Kedushin, remarkable teaching in the Talmud. They had a d- debate amongst the rabbis. This is Kedushin on page 40b. They had an argument. Is Torah study greater? Is Talmud greater? Or Misa, actions greater? So initially they said, Rabbi Tarfon says, Misa Gadol, to do a mitzvah, to do action is greater than to study Torah. Says Rabbi Kiva, no, you're wrong. Torah, Talmud Torah is greater. Studying Torah is greater. Why? Shehatalmud mevi lide ma'isa, because Torah study brings to action. What Rabbi Kiva is describing is not just studying with the, for the sake of studying. He's describing studying in the manner that he is accustomed to, i.e. water, the Torah, ain ma'imela Torah, penetrating the heart and internally changing the stone that was the Yetzirah. Rabbi Kiva he had a whole lifetime of scholarship from the age of 40 to the age of 120 when he died of Torah study. And what did the Torah study do? It changed him internally. It penetrated his Yetzirah and turned it into a Yetzir Tov. I.e. Rabbi Kiva has spent the whole life doing the previous method of the Gemara, of to- study Torah. And therefore, he every time he gets the Shema, he says, Shema, I love God. God exists. Right? And then he says, And he wants to give up his life. Who does that? Who wants to give up your life? The answer is, because Rabbi Kiva's Torah study internally changed him, it created a different kind of person. Someone with Adi Yetzirah. Yetzirah wants you to live for this world. Your neshama, your soul wants you to live for Olam Abba. So Rabbi Kiva's like, I have a, I have a, I don't have a Yetzirah. I, I, well, maybe I have some degree of Yetzirah, but it's been, it's been transformed with the Torah. I want to live for Olam Abba. I want to give up my life for God. I want to, I want to give up my life for God. Where, where did that come from? That came from his Torah study. That came from the water penetrating his rock. Thus, when he finally fulfills this mitzvah, what do we see? We see, of course, an act of martyrdom. But at its roots, that's an act of Torah. That's a result of his Torah study. Because of his Torah study, he said, When can I finally fulfill this mitzvah? Thus, when the angels see it, Yes, on the surface, there's no Torah study at all. But this action that he did, giving up his life for God, that's a reflection of the Torah, the Talmud, maybe the Maisa, the Torah of the water penetrating the rock that changed him and that made him so eager to give up his life for God. So the Malachim says, Zu Torah. This is the Torah because this is the byproduct of the Torah. Zu Schara. What this means is that the Shema, that is a declaration of God's dominion over the world. It's an intellectual affirmation of what we know is true. And that's why it's very powerful. Because if you have this, it's a very evocative feeling. If you're a Bekiva, you say Shema, and you're totally overwhelmed with love of God, you want to give up your life for God. We say Shema, we feel nothing. But a Bekiva, because of his pedigree, because of his background, 
because of his Torah, as we see, when he said the Shema, he was literally yearning and hoping, I want to give up my life for God. Well, if someone lives like that, someone says Shema, Rabbi Kiva said Shema, can you imagine what it was like every morning? He's crying because he doesn't have the opportunity to give his life for God. You know who gets cut out of that equation? The Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is like, he, the Yetzirah comes as a foreign God who tries to create an alternative, tried to obviate the need for God. And every time Rabbi Kiva says the Shema, He's crying, if only I had the opportunity to give up my life for God. Of course, if, you, if he's so committed to God, he is relieving himself of the Yetzirah as well. But I think that's why it's so powerful, but I also think that's why it's not so effective. Because this requires prerequisites. Both Rabbi Akiva and Jacob, our forefathers, both of them already had advanced assaults on the Yetzirah before they employed the Shema as some sort of powerful tool against the Yetzirah. The Shema, indeed, is a powerful tool for those who already have an arsenal, who have a repertoire of battle-proven tactics against the Yetzirah. If you already have Torah, if you already have, you already are Rebbe Kiva, then Shema is powerful. If you're just saying the Shema, you're just puppeting over some words that you learned when you were five years old, how effective is that? That's not necessarily very effective. But indeed, it can be utilized. It is a very powerful, potent weapon, provided that certain contexts exist. The Ramam tells us that a person should really spend several years dwelling, contemplating, and ruminating over the six words of the Shema. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elohim Hashem Chad. To us, it's pretty cut and dried. Believe in God, Hashem exists, Hashem is one. Mazel tov, you're done. That's what we feel. Says the Rambam, the titanic intellect, he says it's appropriate for someone to spend several years contemplating and thinking about the Shema. Obviously, there's a lot there, but for us, we have to work really hard to unlock it. Once we do, it can indeed be transformative. It can evoke a very powerful feeling of connection to God that would obviate the Yetzirah from the equation. I was thinking that the Yetzirah and this world has been compared to darkness in many places in Jewish literature. I think it's not a coincidence that the Torah tells us that you say Shema at night when you go to sleep and at morning when you wake up, i.e. when you're with the Yetzirah in the nighttime, fight it with the Shema. When you get out of it in the morning, the first thing you do is say the Shema because bookending your encounters with the Yetzirah, with the Shema, is a very powerful tactic to be successful in defeating it. And lastly, we arrive to the day of death. Says the Talmud, if you want to fight Yetzirah, remind him the day of death. That is an absolutely proven formula that's guaranteed to work. That's a poison pill, and that will surely eradicate the Yetzirah. The question is why? So this is like a direct assault on the Yetzirah. The question is why? It seems that the Yetzirah's power only stems from the belief that this world is the only world that we have. If someone remembers that they're going to die and they're going to have to give a din v'cheshbon, a reckoning and accounting to God before, uh, uh, after, they're, after they're dead, someone like that is not likely to sin, says the Mishnah. Look at three things. You won't come to sin. Know where you came from? 
know where you're going, and know before whom you're going to have to give an accounting and a reckoning before them. The reason why the Yetzirah has power is because it deludes us into the belief or it lulls us into the distortion that this is the only world that we have. When we contemplate upon our own demise, we realize that we have to try to invest in our permanent self. We have to try to think about the big picture. What are we going to tell God? The Yetzirah's energy, its oxygen, is choked out of it, and we can defeat it. There's an amazing Gemara here of how this was actually once used. This is a Gemara in Adarim. The Gemara says, it's talking about a Nazir. A Nazir is someone who accepts upon himself a vow of Nazirus, which means that for a minimum of 30 days, they cannot drink wine, come in contact with dead people or cut their hair. Now the halacha is, after someone does that, they have to go to Jerusalem and cut off all their hair, shave all their hair. So for 30 days, they don't shave their hair, they don't shave any of their hair, but after that, they come to Jerusalem and they bring their sacrifices and they have to cut their hair. That's the halacha. Now the rabbis said, they don't like when people do it. Eh, it's not a good idea to become a nazir. Don't accept upon yourself this vow. But there was one exception, and this is the Talmud in the Dharm. Shimon Atzadik said, in my whole life, I never was happy with a, with a Nazir. Besides for once. There was one time a Nazir came from the south and I saw that he had beautiful eyes and he looked really beautiful and he had these long flowing locks and I said to him, why are you going to cut off your beautiful hair? Because we know he was a Nazir who was complaining against the Zeros and you have to cut off your hair. So he tells me the story. I was a shepherd for my father in my city, and I went one day to fill up the water for my flock. And in the reflection I saw of the water, I saw my face, and I was overwhelmed with the Yetzirah, and he wanted to take, destroy my life. Amartilo, I said to him, Russia, wicked one, Lama ata why are you haughty in a world that's not yours? How could you possibly have pride in someone, i.e. a body, that's eventually going to be worms and maggots? I pledge and I promise that I will cut off all the hair in order for the sake of heaven. And that's why immediately he accepted upon himself a vow of Nazirus and upon the completion of his Nazirus, he came and cut off his hair. And says, Shimon Atzadek says, the high priest, Miad Amadati Vinashati Rosha. Right away I got up and I kissed him on his forehead and I said, Bini Kamocha Yarbu Grozer Nazir's Bistral. You, like you, you're the right kind of Nazir. You're a Nazir who used this tool to fight the Yetzirah. And this is the appropriate usage of the vow of Nazir. Most people do it for wrong reasons. That's the story. But I think it's, it's, well, first of all, there's an interesting question here. Because this person was overwhelmed with the Yetzirah because of their hair. Right? The hair is what set them off. So the question is, if you have, if you, your hair is long, and you want to, and you want to cut it, well, there's a simple solution. Go to your house, get your scissors, and cut it off. So the Ben Yehoyada, he says that the Torah, that Talmud gives us the background of the story. He was a shepherd who went out into the fields and saw the reflection of the well. What that means is, is that he was away from civilization. So he reckoned 
that if I'm inspired not to cut off my hair to fight the Yetzirah, I'm going to get home. It's going to be 10, 15 minutes later. And I'm going to go with the scissors. By that time, the inspiration will already dissipate. And therefore, what's the only thing I, I could do right now at the peak of inspiration? What can I do right now, this instant, to guarantee that I'll cut off my hair? I'll accept for myself a vow of Naziris. But I think it's also interesting to look at his rationale, how he's finding the Yetzirah. Russia, we're here one. Why are you taking pride in a world that's not yours? This world is not our world. The Yetzirah says, go live it. It's your world. Go grab it. I think that's one of the slogans of one of the companies, right? Uh, grab life by the horns or, or it's your world. Discover your world. I think that's the logo of the, uh, of Ontario. It's like, discover your, no, this is not your world. Your world is Olam This world is a distraction. It's just trying to dupe you. You're, you're living in a fantasy world. It's not real. It's virtual reality. We're putting on headphones and we believe it's real. That's what this world is. And the HR is trying to injure us and cause us as much pain and suffering in this virtual reality. We have to realize we're going to pull off those heads, that headset sometime soon. We'll see the real world. And we're going to be in big trouble if we follow the mistakes of the Yetzirah. He is convincing us that this world is the world that we have. We think about the day of death, and right away we recognize, I'm going to have to pull off these virtual reality goggles. And when I do that, I'm going to have to suffer big-time consequences if I make a huge mess in this uh, living room, uh, uh, or in this reality, with this soul that I have. And I was thinking, you know, a lot of people, they're very uncomfortable with the notion of thinking about their own death. It's a little bit uh, uneasy with it. And I was once wondering, um, pondering, you know, why are people terrified of contemplation of their own demise? What's so scary about it? So some people say, well, it's the fear of the unknown. unknown. Well, it's not. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. You're going to die. Uh, within 45 minutes, you're going to have some, or within a couple of hours, you're going to have rigor mortis. You're going to freeze in place. They're going to take you to the, you know exactly what happens, right? They're going to take you to the, hopefully they'll take you to the, to the Chavra Kadisha, and they'll give you a mikvah, and they'll put you on, uh, tachrichim, uh, burial shrouds. They'll put you in a box. Hopefully they'll bury you in a nice Jewish cemetery, maybe even in Israel. They'll put you in the ground. They'll cover you with earth. They'll put up a sign that says that your body's there. The little worms will come and eat up at, at your, at your, at your flesh. What is not unknown? It's very much known. That is known. I'm, I'm, we're not scared of tomorrow, even though tomorrow is really unknown. We don't know what's happening tomorrow. But death, we know exactly what's happening. It's not the fear of the unknown. The fear is, the real fear of death is that we are living in this fantasy, this virtual reality of the Yetzirah that we like so much because we actually believe what he's selling us. This is the real world. We're terrified of our real world, so to speak, our facade that the Yetzirah creates for us to be pulled out. And we know it's coming at death. We absolutely know that's happening. We know that our soul is going to be pulled out of these magic glasses, this virtual reality that we're living in. We know that's happening. Absolutely we know that. And we're terrified because we've grown accustomed to this world. You think about the day of death, it's uneasy, but really it's a day of clarity. It's the day where finally our soul is going to be freed of this body and the Yetzirah and all those influences. It's a wonderful day. It's excitement. And Rabbi Kiva was, couldn't wait to die in a weird way. I want to have this opportunity to do a mitzvah. But what I mean, you're going to die. I know that. I'm not scared of dying. I'm very much aware of what's at stake. What's at hand over here? I know that this world is not my world. 
and I want to live for next world. That is my world. And it's a very powerful thing. We will all die. This body that's talking to you, these ears that are listening, everyone is listening on the podcast. All of you are going to die. Maybe you could push it to live maybe, I don't know, 100 years, 120 years, but you're going to die. What about then? Everyone now is obsessed with financial planning. You got to plan. You got to plan for your retirement. People retire now at 65 and they got a plan to live to 100. Well, what about your plan for your real retirement? Which is not just 25, 35 years of retirement playing golf. It's eternity in Olamaba. Where's your 401k for that? Where's your Roth IRA? How come we're not discussing it with your advisor, financial advisors? That's what you should be doing. Cause that's way more permanent than a few years in this world. Will I have this condo or that condo? That's the difference, right? Olamaba, will I be roasting in hell with the Rishayim? Or will I have eternal pleasure with Sadiqim? You have to talk to your spiritual financial advisor to plan your real retirement, to study Torah. That's what you got to do, right? And this is a very powerful thing. It's it's a very emo, it's emotional, it's scary, it's terrifying, but it's very valuable because it can really realign us on our path in life. And that's why it works because it chokes the Yetzirah, because it pull. Its only power is the fact that it creates this false world for us, but it's also painful. To think about it because it's, it's scary. It's scary because it, at, you know, maybe it is a good thing to think about. We know that Roshanim Kippur, we say, we inv- invoke this theme a lot, uh, during those holidays. When are we go that way, that this way, we're that, that way, we're that, that way. Dude, why, why all the obsession with death? Well, maybe that's, that's the time to pull the punches. That's the time to think about this. These, this, these are important things and we should dwell upon them. It's a worthy cause to think about that. You know, we want to reinvent ourselves. We want to destroy our Yetzirah. What day do we need to do that more than any other? Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Who knows? Who knows if we're going to make it out to the next year? Who knows? How could you possibly be sure? Well, what do you do about that? You got to make sure you got your, your, your matters and your affairs in order. Indeed, Chazal enliven us and illuminate for us ways to ensure that we have many, many different tools in uh, in vanquishing the villain, in being successful in our life's mission, in overwhelming and overcoming and overpowering Yetzirah. And I hope that we can all be successful in this most critical, pivotal, crucial, and vital pursuit of our lives.